If you're out in the entryway, I don't know if you can hear me or not, but you can make your way back in. You probably can't hear me. Ben's whistling. Here we go. All right? Bring him in. Let's go. If you're new here and we haven't met before, my name is Brent Smith. I'm one of the leaders here at Christ Central and uh, certainly glad that you've joined us this morning. And uh, I agree with you. What a great what a great morning already, and we hope to continue that. Uh, so for this morning, as if you've been here through the summer, we've done a series through Proverbs. We're shifting. Ben's still whistling. Maybe other people are whistling. Ben's over there. There we go. We're shifting gears a bit. We uh, finished up our series in Proverbs. As Mark said, he's started a series called This Is Us, where we're exploring some of the core values of our church, and he's going to carry that through the fall. When I'm up here, you and I are heading back into 2 Corinthians. So if you remember, way back in May, uh, we, we kind of set our series down in 2 Corinthians for a bit to get ready for the weekend away, and then we we're into Proverbs, but it's good to pick it back up. Today, we started this way back in January 2017. Time flies when you're having fun going through 2 Corinthians. So uh, it doesn't seem like that long ago to me. Maybe it does to you. Uh, maybe it seems longer. Who knows? Uh, so we've been on a bit of a slow pace. If you thought we were slow for the last year and a half, I have bad news for you. It ain't getting much quicker. All right? So we've got this morning, and then I preach again in a couple weeks. And then uh, if you didn't know, my wife Karen is, is pregnant with our sixth child, and she's due on October 10th, and so because of that and because of a few other things, I'm not going to be preaching very much this fall, so we're, we're going to pick up 2 Corinthians, but we're not going to get through it uh, very quick, uh, but I think it'll be good. Hopefully it'll be good. It's kind of like being reunited with an old friend that you haven't talked to in a while, right? So we're back in, yeah, that's just me, that's fine. Uh, we're back to 2 Corinthians. I've enjoyed getting back uh, in the Second Corinthians groove this week, and uh, and hopefully uh, we have a good morning getting back in. So we finished in Second Corinthians chapter eight, and uh, so we'll pick things up pretty much where we left off. I'll pray, and then uh, we'll do a bit of review so that we all get on the same page. Uh, and I'm going to assume you haven't been listening to the series through the summer. Uh, I'm I'm assuming that. We all need a bit of a catch-up, and so we'll do that, and then, uh, and then we'll jump in. So, Father, we're so thankful uh, for your presence here with us. We're so thankful uh, that you uh, meet with us, that you're not a distant God, uh, that you presence yourself with us, and uh, we're so thankful for the way that you've already encouraged us with truth. You've lifted our hearts to worship you, and we just pray that you would continue that work. We pray that you would come now by your Spirit that you would use your word uh, to change us, Father. We, we don't want to just come on a Sunday morning and go through the motions. We want to lift your name high. We want to worship you, and we want to meet with you, and we want to leave different than when we came in. And so we pray that you would do that, Father. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand what you want to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so a quick review to start, the book of the Bible called 2 Corinthians is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul, oddly enough, to a church in the city of Corinth. 
in, in Greece. In Paul's time, Corinth was one of the, the major players in the Roman Empire. It was a major port city. It was a commercial hub. It was booming. And we read in Acts 18 that Paul arrives in Corinth with a vision to see the gospel take root in the city. He teams up with a nice couple named Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, we know that they're a nice, pleasant couple because their names rhyme. <laughs> and uh, he begins to see people respond to the good news of Jesus. A church is formed, and then Paul stays with them there for a year and a half, and he's strengthening his friendship with them and building foundations into them of what it means to be the people of God. And after Paul left Corinth, though, uh, his relationship with the church there, uh, it really hit the rocks. It really uh, started to take a turn, like, like bad. Not just like, oh, things are a little tense, but more like uh, change your Facebook relationship status bad. Okay? Things really uh, took a turn for the worse. And the church wasn't handling some situations very well. Paul kind of called them out on it. They didn't respond well. Uh, Paul talks about painful visits. Uh, Paul wrote what he called a severe letter. Apparently, Paul wasn't aware that it's fine to write out the severe letter, but then you can just leave it in your draft folder and you don't have to click send and you can still feel better that you've got it all out. He clicks send and he sends the severe letter and, uh, <clears throat> and then he sends it by his good friend Titus and Titus comes back and he says, Paul, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Uh, the good news is that many have responded positively to your severe letter. They've repented. They've come back to you, back to the gospel, uh, back to seeing you as their apostle. Uh, but the bad news is that some are still rejecting you. Some are questioning your authority. Things were being said like, how can Paul be an apostle? His ministry is so bland and plain compared to others. You know, where are the, the double-breasted suits and the gold chains and Paul's not very flashy, and uh, he suffers a lot, and uh, yeah, he might be collecting money for the poor. He's probably just keeping it all for himself, and there's kind of these rumors going around and these accusations going around, and so on top of all that drama, 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 some Jewish Christians had, had crept into the church, and uh, they were influencing the church away from Paul, and in his six years with the church, this was the most serious uh, that it had ever come to. Uh, this is the most serious problem that Paul had ever come up against. And so from Titus's report of good and bad news, Paul sits down to write what we know as 2 Corinthians. And it's the most emotional of all of Paul's letters. He just opens, opens himself up here in a way that he doesn't in his other letters. He kind of lays his heart out for the second Corinthians, for the Corinthians, he's very uh, vulnerable, and uh, the whole theme of the letter can be summed up in chapter 12, verse nine. Uh, that's really uh, provides a good theme for the whole of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and it says, "My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest." upon me. And so God's power is made perfect in our weakness. And all through the letter, Paul keeps coming back to this idea that weakness is the source of strength. The whole letter of Paul sets up this 
this paradox, as it were. There is a weakness that makes us powerful. There is a poverty that makes us rich. Thinking about dying gives us courage for living. We are just jars of clay, but we carry in us the treasure of the glory of God. And so Paul is kind of turning upside down our natural expectations of the way life works. Second Corinthians, he's just kind of flipping everything around on us. And that has particular application for what we're going to look at this morning. Paul is turning upside down our natural expectations of the way life works. And he's showing us a way to live that lines up with and reflects the cross of Christ. There is something going on with my thing. I think it's hooked on something every time I... There we go. I think I got it free. Problems, eh? Light and momentary. I don't know how much weight of glory that is storing up for me, but... <clears throat> so, uh, if you want to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9... And uh, this morning, we are going to attempt to unpack the whole chapter, all right? So look at us. I said we were going to go slow, and here we are going to look at the whole chapter of chapter 9. For some of you, the thrill of burning through a whole chapter is quenched a bit when you realize that chapter 9 is all about financial giving. Uh, But that's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, For the keeners in the room, you remember that we left off back in May talking about giving as well. In chapter 8, we learned that any talk about our giving must begin with uh, talking about the grace of God. And all of our giving is just a reflex of God's giving to us. And we learned about a group of people from Macedonia uh, who were radically generous. And from what Paul says about them, when we looked at those verses, uh, we said that the process of the Macedonians' generosity was this. It's that grace comes down, joy rises up in our heart, generosity spills over, and then commitment and love push that out even more. So that's what we looked at way back in May, and uh, we got a lot about giving just in Paul, what Paul says in chapter 8. Uh, so maybe you're thinking, do we really need another talk on giving? Uh, Paul starts chapter 9 by saying, I don't really have any need to repeat myself, and some of you are probably like, and all God's people said, Amen. Let's move on to chapter 10, see what's going on there, right? Uh, But even though he starts that way, he does uh, have a few things to say in chapter 9. And if Paul thought it was good for him to focus on that more with the Corinthians, then we should probably humble ourselves and see what God wants to do in and through us uh, through these verses as well, okay? It's 1120, longest introduction ever, but let's dive in. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and we'll read it together, and then we'll just start to uh, break it down a bit. So 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 1 and reading all the way through. Honest, I've practiced saying superfluous all week, and I still don't think I have it. So just bear with me, okay? Superfluous, right? superfluous. I even went on Google or on dictionary.com and you can click the little thing and he says it and I still was like, oh man, that's awkward. (laughs) All right, here we go. 
Now there's just so much pressure about this. <laughs> now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, you will be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. <clears throat> All right, so as we saw last time, Paul is collecting money for the churches to help out the church in Jerusalem, which is struggling. It's in the midst of a, of a famine, and he starts out here in chapter 9 by telling the Corinthians in verse 2, hey, you guys, you started giving towards this, and uh, when, I, when I told the Macedonians about, your, about what you did and about your zeal to give, it really stirred them up. All that I just said about how radical their generosity was, it all kind of sprung from me telling you, telling them about you guys, right? So he's encouraging the Corinthians in that. And then in verse 3, he says, So I'm sending the brothers, which we learned from the end of chapter 8, are Titus and his two buddies, and I'm sending them down to you in advance so that when I arrive, you guys are ready and willing to give. I know for myself it's true, uh, but sometimes we can find it easy to start things and hard to see things through to the end, right? It's easy to start things. It's hard to see things through to completion. And same with the Corinthians. They had started the collection for the Jerusalem church, uh, but then they, they waned a bit. And Paul's like, Okay, guys, let's, let's see these, this through. I'm sending the boys down, and they're going to help get, get things ready. And just a tip, I, when I come, I might be bringing some of the Macedonians with me, and I really bragged you up to them, so don't embarrass me, basically is what he's saying. Uh, when I come, I want everything to be ready, and you guys are willing, and let's do this thing. So you can just imagine the potential for 
humiliation here. If you picture that kind of the, the raggedy bunch of Macedonians comes down with Paul and Paul has really talked about the generosity of the Corinthians and he's bragged them up a bit and, uh, and that really stirred the Macedonians. Paul talks about them giving beyond their means, about uh, even in the midst of affliction and poverty, how they overflowed in a wealth of generosity. So on the trip down, you know, they're excited. We're going to meet the Corinthians and they show up on the doorstep of the, of the Corinth church and the, the wealthy Corinthians are not ready to give. They're unprepared to give. That would be very, uh, a very humiliating experience. It would be like that emoji with like the grill face like this, <laughs> right? It would be a, a humiliating experience for Paul. Yikes. But Paul just doesn't leave it there. He wants the Corinthians to see a full picture of what biblical giving is like. Yes, he wants the Corinthians to be ready, but there's more to it than that. And he doesn't just want them to give, he wants them to give in a certain way. And so in the next few verses, he shows them how they should give, but also why they should give in that way as well. So the first part, it's all about spurring them on. We want you to be ready. We want you to be willing. Titus and the guys are coming down to ensure that. And let's come on, let's get together and let's Let's do this. But then it's not just about giving. It's not just about we want, you know, we want to color in the thermometer and we want this much. Paul is as concerned with how they give as he is with what they're giving. So Paul first describes what our giving should look like. And look at what he says in verse 6. He says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This summer, our front yard survived the grubs, but our backyard did not survive the grubs. And uh, this may surprise you, but I was not out in May picking grubs out of the sod and raking and uh, cleaning the yard all up and releasing nematodes and fertilizer and seed and restoring the lawn to its original glory. That may surprise you, but I was not out there doing that. The original glory of our back lawn was not great to begin with. So <clears throat> uh, the ground is pretty uneven. There's muddy ravines where each swing is in the swing set. And when we moved in, there was a tiny mint patch, and now it's about 80% of our back lawn. <laughs> I don't know if any of you have mint or would like mint, uh, but we've got mint, and it's... It's abounding. Um, but so anyway, I got, I got grass, grass seed uh, mixed with clover from the co-op. And I had a plan of just before we go on vacation in July, I will spread the grass seed out. That way the kids aren't running on it for a few days at least. Give the, the grass seed a fighting chance. And uh, I bought what I thought was a pretty good sized bag of seed. Uh, and then I went to the backyard just before we left on vacation, and boy, did I sow that bountifully, at least at the start, okay? <laughs> I was just like I was throwing rice at a wedding. It was just, <sighs> just everywhere. I was sowing it very, very bountifully. But I got about halfway across the lawn, and I realized I'm not going to have enough. <laughs> I am not going to have enough to finish this, so I cut back big time, and I began sowing very sparingly. 
uh, to stretch it out uh, and make sure that I at least covered the whole lawn with, with some seed. And so we got back from vacation and give it a few days and a few weeks. And when I went in the backyard, I saw exactly what I expected. Some areas were lush and full and others were barren and patchy, right? <laughs> it was very evident where I had sowed bountifully and it was very evident where I had sowed sparingly. And so the first thing Paul wants us to see about giving is the correlation between what we sow and what we reap, or what we give and what is produced by that giving. And what is implied here is that we should look to sow bountifully. We should have a bountiful generosity in our giving that produces a bountiful harvest. So on the back of our Proverbs series, it's worth knowing that Paul's statement here is rooted back in Proverbs 11, 24, and 25 that says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. So whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. It's pretty, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? It would have been foolish for me to expect the grass to grow up bountifully all over the lawn when I didn't sow bountifully all over the lawn. And Paul is telling us that the same principle applies to our giving. This summer, my son got help from our neighbor to plant a small garden. If he plants seven cucumber seeds, he should not expect 40 cucumbers in the backyard, right? There is a correlation between our sowing and our reaping. But we also need to be careful not to approach this in kind of a kind of a wooden way with like excessive literalism. This is uh, a proverbial statement, meaning we shouldn't approach it like a machine, input X, push button A, and receive Y. You know, I put $50 in the basket today, and so now I'll wait for $50 worth of blessing from God. It's not meant to be taken that way. Our main question when we read this shouldn't be, how will God bless me when I give? Instead, and should, it should be what determines whether a gift is sparing or bountiful. What determines whether we are sowing sparingly or sowing bountifully. That's what we need to know, isn't it? We've already seen with the Macedonians in chapter 8 that a gift may be comparatively small but spiritually large, that bountiful giving is in proportion to one's wealth. Our default is kind of to hear bountiful giving and think big numbers, uh, but that's not necessarily what Paul is talking about. He's already shown us in chapter 8 that bountiful giving isn't really about big numbers, but it's about uh, a big uh, percentage or a big proportion to the wealth that we have. But also, and maybe even more importantly, Paul wants us to see that bountiful giving has to do with the attitude of our hearts. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. So think for a minute about the word sparingly. About the word sparingly. When we say spare my life, we mean let me keep it. Don't take it from me. When we say spare no expense, we mean hold back no expense. And so to give sparingly is to give from a heart that inside, deeply, it wants to hold back. It wants to hold back. We may give, and on the outside, it may look like we're being generous, 
but the real feeling of our heart is not to think of how much we can give, but how much we can keep. We are giving from a heart that wants to hold back, that wants to keep. Halfway through my sowing of the grass seed, I began holding back. I was giving, but ultimately I was more concerned with how much was left in the bag than I was with how much was in my hand and how much was landing on the lawn. I was more concerned with how much I was keeping than with how much I was giving. And with each throw, I became more and more focused on that bag. I kept looking in how much is left, how much is left, how much is left. I wasn't overly concerned with how much I was throwing out on the lawn. I was now sowing sparingly. And the result was that I reaped sparingly as well. So whether our gift is sparing or bountiful, it isn't about the size of the gift, but the size of the gift in relation to our own wealth, and it's about the attitudes of our heart when we do give. Okay? So that's the first thing. We want to be bountiful givers. We don't want to be sparing givers, and that is, has to do a lot with our heart and our attitudes that we have when we are giving. Paul explains this further in verse 7. The first of verse 7, he says, Each one must give as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. So our giving should be bountiful and our giving should be thoughtful as well. Our giving should be thought out. The Bible doesn't promote mindless giving. Giving is never to be careless or impulsive or lacking in preparation and planning. Paul says, take some time to decide. Think about what you're doing. And more importantly, think about why you are doing it. Eugene Peterson uh, says this verse this way. He says, I want each of you to take plenty of time to think it over and make up your own mind what you will give. That will protect you against sob stories and arm twisting. That's helpful, isn't it? That's helpful. Take some time to think it over and that's going to protect you from sob stories and arm twisting. Sob stories are everywhere these days. They fill our screen, whether it's commercials on TV or Facebook posts shared. We're bombarded with stories that are meant to bring tears to our eyes and, 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 and encourage us to give impulsively. Or we are faced with many situations of arm twisting, so much so that we probably don't even realize it as such, situations where our hearts are not involved in any way. We're just trying to buy laundry detergent, and then you get to the checkout and you're asked if you want to add $2 for the breakfast club, right? And it's not that that's wrong, or uh, it might be breakfast club, day camp, any charitable organization, and giving to those could be good and right to give, but nonetheless, Paul says you should decide in your own heart what to give. When you go through the checkout, the only thing you've decided in your heart is whether you should have got Tide Pods or gone with the giant jug of liquid detergent, right? We haven't decided in our heart whether we want to give to some charity. It's an impulsive giving. It owes nothing to our own heart being involved in the issue. We're now face-to-face -face with, a, with a mechanism urging us to give. It's designed to coerce us to give without, without thought. And Paul says it shouldn't be that way. It should be that each one decides in their own heart what to give. It should be a thoughtful decision. 
I'm not saying don't do the $2 added to your grocery bill. I'm not saying do it. I'm just saying Paul says think it through. And it should be a matter of your heart that you think it through. And, and you need to think it through to protect yourself from sob stories and arm twisting. It's not something we should do reluctantly. And it's not something that we should be coerced into. The motivation to our giving shouldn't be fear that the cashier will have a low view of us. Or the motivation of our giving shouldn't be that we want to impress the church treasurer. The motivation of our giving shouldn't be that we're trying to buy our way into something. The motivation of our giving shouldn't be because we feel pressured into it, either by heavy commands or sad stories pulling on our hearts. Our giving should be bountiful, but our giving should be thoughtful. Okay? I don't know if you've thought about that before, but the Bible doesn't promote mindless giving. The Bible promotes giving where we think about what we're giving, and more importantly, we think about why we are giving it. Our giving should be bountiful. Our giving should be thoughtful. Lastly, our giving should be cheerful. He says at the end of verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So when we give reluctantly, when our concern is about more about what we keep than what we give, when we give uh, a guilt-manipulated gift, we experience no joy. It's impossible to give reluctantly or under compulsion and be cheerful about it. All we're really doing then is paying a God tax, right? And I know very few people who give their income tax cheerfully, right? We do it because uh, we feel we have a legal obligation or we're afraid of criminal punishment. And when we give to God out of those motivations, we don't experience any joy either. We're just paying our God tax. But when we're set free from those things, we can be cheerful in our giving. And far from paying a God tax, a generous lifestyle is a life of freedom, of simplicity, of joy, of fruitfulness, of purpose. There is a satisfaction to pleasing God, to bringing joy and honor to Him. There's a cheerfulness in the sowing because God's given us eyes to the harvest. We have eyes to see the, the joyful harvest that our giving will produce. And this is where Paul switches gears and begins to show us the benefits our, of our giving. He begins showing us just what the harvest is when we give bountifully, thoughtfully, and cheerfully. And what I just love about the Bible is that it never just gives us commands. The Bible never just gives us uh, reasons. The Bible gives us, always gives us reasons and motivation for why we should do what it says. So that's just one of the differences between uh, Christianity and Nike, is that Christianity never just says, just do it. There are commands and there are uh, you know, instructions for us, but they're always accompanied by reasons. They're always accompanied by truth to motivate us towards that. So Paul just doesn't say, look, okay, here's how to give. You should give bountifully and you should put some thought into it. And while you're at it, smile while you're doing it. Now get on with it and move on. He, t he gives these things. He says, no, let's, let's give bountifully. Let's give thoughtfully. Let's give cheerfully. 
And then he says, and here's why. He gives us ample reason for us to give in the way that he has instructed us to give. So look at what he says in verse 8. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And then he continues that in verse 10. He says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So here Paul is showing us that as we give, God will supply. And I don't know about you, but so often our fear holds us back from being generous, right? Our fear holds us back. We're afraid that generous giving will leave us impoverished. And it's like Paul knows how deep those fears can be and how much power they can have over our giving. And so he repeats himself uh, three times, basically, in verse 8 and verse 10 and verse 11. God is able to make all grace abound to you. God will supply and multiply your seed. You will be enriched in every way. Now, it's really important here for us to ask the question, to what end or for what purpose or what goal in mind does God have uh, when he causes the generous Christian to abound? Right? That's a really important question to ask here. Why does God promise abundance to those who cheerfully and freely give to others? If we don't ask that question and we just leave it at, you will be enriched in every way. You give and God will abound and supply for you. Then we can find ourselves in the same camp with televangelists and prosperity gospel teachers claiming that if you give to their ministry, then God will give you a BMW, right? Uh, but So it's really important for us to ask that question. And Paul tells us why God will cause the giver to abound. And so that it's really clear, he says it three times over. Could you guys put that verse up so we could see it? Awesome. Uh, yep. So he says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, why? You may abound in BMWs. You may abound in gold watches. You may abound in Mercedes. Or every good work. That's why Paul, that's why God is uh, abounding in supply to the generous giver, is so that the generous giver can now abound in every good work. And then in verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for what? For more sowing, right? So as you sow, God's going to provide. Why? For more sowing. And then in verse 11, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be comfortable in every way. No, so that you can be generous in every way. There we go. Woo. So that you can be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. This isn't a guarantee that our circumstances will improve or that we will be protected from suffering or hardship or that will suddenly become rich in the world's eyes. The idea that we should give so that God will enrich us personally with a view of increasing our own comfort and convenience 
is, is foreign to Paul's teaching. It doesn't line up with what he's saying. The purpose is so that we may abound in every good work, not in every BMW. Personal wealth is here viewed not as an end of itself, but as a means to a yet higher goal, more generosity to those in need. Paul is saying that we will never give generously without discovering afresh God's ability to supply our needs so that we can give generously again. Paul is saying that we will never give generously without discovering afresh God's ability to supply our needs so that we can give generously again. On top of the promise of God's abundant provision toward us, uh, we are also reminded that our giving is not just for here and now, but it's an eternal work. In verse 9, Paul quotes Psalm 112, verse 9, uh, that says, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. And at first glance, we might think that this refers to God's righteousness, but a closer look of Psalm 112 clearly indicates that the he who has distributed freely, the he who has given to the poor, the one whose righteousness endures forever is in fact the Christian. So Paul has us in mind here when he quotes this verse. When we trust in God's provision, freely and generously give, that righteous act will endure forever. That righteous act will endure forever. Our bountiful, thoughtful, cheerful giving has an eternal significance about it that will never fade away or lose its value before God. Jesus told us to store up our treasures not on earth, but in heaven. There's an eternal value to our giving. And if we are giving sparingly, it could be that we are looking too much to earth and this age and not enough to the age to come. If we're giving sparingly, it may, become, may be that we have become too earthly-minded. On top of God supplying our needs and the eternal significance to our giving, another motivation, very simply, in verse 12, Paul reminds us the very practical benefit of giving needs are met. He says, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints. So when we give, we have the joy of seeing people's needs met. And then in verse 14, he says that not only will the Jerusalem church have their needs met, but they will long for you. And so it's not just helping them physically by the gift, but their hearts will be in some way united with the Corinthians. There's a pulling of the heart as they receive the gift, yes, it's going to meet their physical needs, but there's a change in the, in the heart of those who receive the gift towards the one who is giving them. And so we have a harvest of needs met, of hearts being uh, intertwined. And lastly, verse 12 reminds us that through our giving, God gets a harvest of thanksgiving. Verse 13 says that God will get more glory. It's the same outcome. God gets glory when his people give generously because we are showing people that God is worthy to be trusted. God is first and foremost the great giver that frees us to give generously 
ourselves, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. And so we have these four things. Paul tells us how to give. He says, give bountifully, give thoughtfully, give cheerfully, and here's why. God's going to supply your needs. You can trust Him. Don't forget that it's an e eternal work that lasts forever. You're going to meet people's needs and do a work in their own heart. And God is going to get a lot of glory from it. God's going to receive a lot of thanksgiving from it. And so He gives us these motivations of why we should give that way. Tim Keller talks about giving he says we should, the Christians should uh, see giving a lot like a roller coaster ride where, we, uh, where there's adventure and there's seeming risk, but really we're safe. And it might feel like we're going to plummet, but God's got us. And so that, he said, that puts a smile on our face and there's joy in giving. There's an excitement in giving. There's an adventure in giving the way God calls us to give. As he reaches the end of his urging the Corinthians on and giving Paul, uh, as he's prone to do, he just can't hold it in anymore. And in verse 13, he just bursts out, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift, his indescribable gift. He finishes this section, chapter 8 and 9, uh, the same way he began it, by pointing us to the grace of God. He started that way in 8 verses, verse 1, pointing us to the grace of God. He's talked to us about giving, and then he bookends it on the other end by reminding us again of the grace of God in our lives. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Yes, we can give, but our gift is very much describable. Our gift is very much expressible. Even if we gave everything we had, even if we gave millions and millions of dollars, there's still parameters on it. It can be measured. It can be defined. There are, you know, but God's gift that he gives to us is indescribable. God's gift that he gives to us is inexpressible. It has a worth that cannot be measured. There are no parameters on it. We can't even comprehend just the the value of the gift that God has given to us because God has given us His Son. Thanks be to God for the inexpressible, the undescribable gift of Jesus Christ for us. We get a glimpse of it and we can try our best, but in the end we just have to say that words fail us. It is an indescribable gift of God. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we have to see it's not a call to legalistic observance. It's not a call to just dig down deep and muster up some radical generosity. It's a call to have our hearts indescribably transform, transformed by the indescribable gift of Jesus. Because it's not, it's not in us to give the way that the Bible calls us to give. For that to happen, we first need a gift to be given 
to us. It's what Angela was talking about in worship. It's not just about us just kind of mustering up some generosity. It's about us being connected with the giver. It's about us being connected and receiving from Him that indescribable gift of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And then that transforming us to then be generous givers ourselves. Church, we've been given an indescribable gift. We've been given an indescribable gift in Jesus. And certainly my prayer is that then that then transforms us to be a church that is radically generous. The Macedonians did it. Why can't the Fredericktonians, right? The Corinthians did it. Why not? Why not us? It's the same Jesus. It's the same indescribable gift that transformed their lives that transformed their whole lifestyle to be a lifestyle where they gave generously. Father, I just pray that you would do that work in our own hearts. I pray, Father, that that we would receive that indescribable gift of Jesus Christ, that inexpressible gift of Jesus Christ. As Angela gave us that helpful picture, we want to be in that flow of your mercy and receive your generosity and grace towards us so that we then can be a generous, giving people. Work in our hearts, Father, and bring that change. For your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen.